funny, isn't it, what you remember from growing up? You remember significant events, and then you also remember insignificant things that matter to nobody, that make no difference, but you can recall them clear as day. One of those for me is remembering the music that my dad played in the car. Couldn't tell you for the life of me what what my mum played in the car, if anything. But my dad had three, I was going to say CDs, cassettes, okay, in his car. One was Enya, one was Huey Lewis in the News, and the other was Cliff Richard. I don't want to make jokes about the people who will respond to that, but they've just outed themselves, so that's fine. It was a Cliff Richard album called Now You See Me, Now You Don't. And if you search for it online, there are, the reviews are interesting, but it's basically this. It's Cliff Richard outing himself as a Christian because the lyrics are so full of, of biblical truth. One of the songs, and I still, I can hear it, and I'm not going to sing it to you, but the, the lyrics say this, like a thief in the night he will come. There will be nowhere left you can run to. You can fall with the night or you can rise with the sun. I don't know how it was received at the time, but those words penetrated my soul. That clarity that Jesus will come back and there will be a division depending on where you stand with him as to what happens when he does. Jesus is coming back and it will go well with you or it will be terrible, awful. We're in Matthew chapter 24 and this chapter starts with three questions. But even before we get to those, what we need to have in our minds is the words of the the final words of chapter 23. Let me read them again to you. This is Jesus speaking, looking over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes In the name of the Lord. Jerusalem, the city, but more properly understood as Jerusalem, the people, will be left desolate. This is the proper response of God to a people who have rejected his prophets. They've rejected his truth. They've rejected his word. And they will and are about to reject his son. And Jesus leaves the temple. He says he will not return. And the emptiness of the temple. And as he's walking away, his disciples draw his attention back to the temple. And they say, Jesus, look how amazing the temple is. Look at at how awesome and, and wonderful it is. And Jesus says to them, don't be impressed. 
I know you've not been often to the big city, guys, but, but don't be impressed. And he walks away with them, with these words ringing in their ears. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And then Jesus walks them over the valley to the Mount of Olives and sits down with them. And perhaps they're looking back on the city, the city of Jerusalem, seeing the temple, the temple mount in the background. And the disciples asked a question or three questions. When, Jesus, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And the end of the age, two or three questions that they ask him. And the answer that Jesus gives in this and the next chapter that we'll, we'll finish off next week with Eliot. The answer he Jesus gives as he sits in that moment in time and history is a revelation to us. Because it tells us how we are to continue to, to live with expectation of what God is going to do. Jesus is going to set the parameters for our life, for our living. Parameters are important, aren't they? We need to know what's going to happen or the the lanes that we need to, to live in. And that's what Jesus is doing in this last block of teaching recorded by Matthew of Jesus. And after this, things are going to speed up as we head at breakneck speak. At breakneck speed into the events of the first Easter. Jesus says, This is how it's going to be. This is what the next age will look like. One age. And Jesus says, The earthly city of Jerusalem, the temple around which all of Israel's worship, all of the people of God's worship has has been centered around, no longer will that be the heart of God's kingdom on earth. He says the people of God will endure to the end, but endurance will be a key word and a key feature because judgment is coming. And all of this difficulty will be played out on one stage after another until Christ returns for the final judgment. And then the kingdom of God will be fully realised. So all that Jesus is going to say in this chapter, some of the things are specific, we'll think about that, but he's also going to talk in generalities about the, the last times. It's a little bit like if you're eating a trifle. I'm, just, I'm waiting for Jane Thomas to look at me because this is not in the notes. Okay. It's a little bit like in a trifle. When you've got through one or two layers and you've got to that point where the spoon is beginning to disappear and you don't know how much of that bottom layer is going to come. We don't know how long the last times are. But Jesus says, this is the expectation. This is what's going to to characterize it. The time in between Jesus' death and resurrection, ascension into heaven, and then when Jesus will return and bring all things to a close. 
I want us to notice, firstly, the three markers of this end, this last period. In verses 9 through to 14, three things. There will be persecution of God's people. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. There will be perseverance of God's saved people. Look at verse 10. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. God's people will persevere, no matter how hard it gets. Thirdly, there will be proclamation. Look down at verse 14. And this gospel, this good news of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. If you take away nothing else from the rest of this chapter, just remember those three things. There will be persecution. There will be perseverance. And there will be proclamation. These will be the markers of the followers of Jesus in the last days. They will suffer, they will stay, and they will speak. And Jesus hears the words of his disciples, these questions, and he answers those questions by talking about two specific events that which will set the tone and the expectations for this whole period. So let's dig in. Jesus knows what's coming. So trust him. Now imagine for a second that even as Esther read this passage to us, you are sceptical. Now maybe you are sceptical. Maybe you're looking in at Christianity and looking in at Jesus and you're thinking, does he really know what he's talking about? And specifically maybe you're sceptical because Jesus is talking about what's to come. Maybe you're sceptical of Christians and the Bible and church. I'm really glad that you're here. I'm really glad that you're listening to this because because Jesus stands up to examination. There are no smoke and mirrors. This is no magician. There's no plant in the audience. But a sceptical mind could look at this and say, Jesus, when you talk about what's to come, you're talking about generalities things that can't fail to be true Jesus you're some sort of scam artist giving general warnings that are bound to be true for some people at some time in some place wars famines earthquakes wait long enough and and you'll see them it's like the psychic saying to a room full of people I think there's somebody here whose name begins with D? E, E, I meant E. And we can take that approach. You think, oh, Jesus, is is this all too general? Is he fishing? But listen to what Jesus says in verse 15. As he speaks to his disciples, so when you see standing in the holy place where the temple is, 
The abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. And he goes on then to talk about what they're to do. Jesus speaks specifically of an event that is going to take place in Jerusalem, in the place of the temple. And he quotes from the Old Testament prophecy of Daniel about this occasion of horror. Now, the Jewish people thought that Daniel's prophecy had already been fulfilled. Around 167, 168 BC, a man called Antiochus Epiphanes had come into Jerusalem, had erected a statue to Zeus on the Temple Mount and slaughtered a pig on the Temple altar. God's place, where God dwells, where God meets with his people, and somebody had come in and set up and offered sacrifices to another god. And he'd slaughtered a pig, an unclean animal according to the Old Testament law as well as destroying many of the buildings of the temple and Jerusalem and killing many people as well. You don't have to delve far into history, any history of humanity, to discover events like this, where somebody victorious comes and rubs it into the face of the people they've defeated. You've only got to turn on and watch pretty much any sport to see it. And then it's mirrored in world events, on wars. But Jesus specifically says to his disciples, you will see this. And maybe if you're a Jewish reader of this, you think, hang on, Jesus is just looking back. This has already happened with this guy Antiochus Epiphanes. But you fast forward 40 years from Jesus speaking with his disciples here to around AD 70, And a Roman general named Titus Vespasian, who would later become Caesar, had his army surround the city of Jerusalem as he decisively ended what had become known as the Jewish revolts. Over a number of days, they fought and defeated the Jewish zealots, as recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus. And his destruction the devastation that he brings, the desolation that he brings to the city of Jerusalem as he kills, and his army kills many, destroys the temple. It matches with this warning that Jesus gives to his disciples. Jesus said, this is what will happen. And we can read through, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Jesus says, it's going to be so bad. Get out. And history records that it was. As these disciples would have witnessed those events, those decades later, they would have recalled the words of Jesus. Look at verse 35, look over the page. Heaven and earth, Jesus says, will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And they would have believed that Jesus knew what he was talking about. Truly, Jesus knew what was coming. In their grief at what had taken place, they would have had hope. 
because this wasn't outside the foresight of God. And accordingly, it wasn't outside of his plan. And they would have had hope because of the other things Jesus said. Not just that this would happen, but in the midst of all this, the gospel of the kingdom would be preached to all nations. Because if you're churched at all, the word gospel can become kind of deadened to us. It's just a churchy word. It's a religious word. But to have heard it in its original sense, this proclamation going forth, it's like the town crier who stands in the street and says, Hear ye, hear ye, great news! And in the midst of their devastation, they would have heard those words of Jesus. That this good news about the kingdom of God, a kingdom that would not be stopped by foreign rulers, a kingdom that would not be prevented by a greater army or a greater kingdom, a kingdom that would last forever, a kingdom that would be marked by love and joy and peace and kindness, a kingdom that would be marked by the forgiveness of sins, all that we've learned through Matthew's gospel over literally years walking through it as a church. All the goodness of Jesus tied up in the fact that this goodness and glory is shared to a world that is broken and dying. In the midst of desolation, the disciples would have remembered the word of Jesus and they would have said, the plan's still on track. Jesus knew what was coming. This is not a mistake. This is, in fact, further evidence that we can trust Jesus. And so, when the temptation came to give up because it was hard, or when the temptation came to, to be focused on, on other people and, and, and establishing my place, they would have stayed. They would have persevered they would have continued believing because Jesus knew it was coming and Jesus showed that he was trustworthy how much more for us 2,000 years on and we've seen this same thing play out over and over again not in Jerusalem but we've seen the wars more wars than we can count we've seen the ongoing earthquakes and famines Jesus knew what was coming it's not a surprise. It's not a mistake. He can be trusted. He has shown it and will continue to show it. Our tomorrows are unknown to us, but not to him. And so as Jesus speaks to us through his word, we look to one who can be trusted. We don't look at Jesus and go, Jesus, but if only you'd have known. No, Jesus shows that he did know. He knew people and he knew our world and he knew the times. So trust that he will keep you. Let your love for him not grow cold. Do not be deceived by people who would promise more than Jesus promised.
or be deceived by people who would claim to know more than Jesus knew. Or be deceived by those who claim to have special knowledge that only comes through them. It's strange, isn't it, to us that all these claims about false messiahs, people who will appear. But it makes sense to a people who are struggling in hard times, might be tempted to listen to people who promise more. Who promise special insight. And Jesus says, no, listen to my words. Trust in me. Heaven and earth might pass away, but my words never will. Trust and therefore know the words of Jesus. Why do we encourage each other to to read the Bible? Because whatever else happens and whatever else will come, the words of Jesus stand true and firm and unchanged and he is never wrong. But Jesus goes on to talk about a second event. Let's think about the fact that Jesus is coming back. Two points on this this title. The first is to be warned. So as we work our way through the chapter, Jesus goes on to talk about the false leaders who will arise. And then Jesus focuses in on the second and third questions of the disciples. What will be the sign of your coming What will be the sign of the end of the age? Moving away from the events of AD 70 and the immediate fulfillment of his words, Jesus once again gives understanding of what is to come. And he says, verse 26, it won't be like this. It won't be that some people spot Jesus and some people have special knowledge Oh, he's in the desert. Come and see. Oh, it won't be. (laughs) Jesus is in the inner room where only certain people have access. Verse 27, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is saying everybody will be aware. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where a royal visitor has come to town. And you see all the preparations that take place. Everything is smartened up. Everything is cleaned. Things that jobs that have been put off for years suddenly get done. Because he or she, the queen or the king, is coming to town. And everybody knows it. Nobody is left unaware. So it will be when the Son of Man, one of the titles for Jesus, specifically one Daniel again uses... When the Son of Man returns, the skies and its inhabitants recognise the coming of the King. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. But unlike when the King or the Queen or somebody like that visits your town, the portents are not bright and shiny and happy but instead it's gloomy the stars don't shine the sun and the moon are hidden 
They cower and they hide. Why? Well, those verses are are quoting from the, the prophet Isaiah. Let me read some of the context of the verses around it. Isaiah chapter 9. See the day of the Lord is coming. A cruel day with wrath and fierce anger. To make the land desolate. And destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil. The wicked for their sins. When the Son of Man appears, and there will come a day when Jesus returns, and everybody will be aware, Jesus says people will mourn. For it will signal the end of God's patience. If you like, it is the the final whistle that will blow on the game and the result will stand. No stoppage time. No late equaliser. Defeat. Destruction. Despair. Judgment. Not to one nation, but to all nations. You see, the gospel of the kingdom will have been preached to every people group across the whole world. They will have heard that there is a king and that he's good. And that he wants the best for people. And that people cannot save themselves but they need to repent and turn and believe. And they will either have responded in faith and repentance. Or they will have heard the message and they will have said, I'm not interested. And so peoples from across the whole earth will mourn when Jesus returns. Because then they will be aware that the gospel of the kingdom is true. And then they will not have repented. And the king will return and deal with his enemies. They will have had the testimony of God's people. But that testimony will be held up against them. If it has not been received, if it has not been acted upon. But notice too, that when Jesus comes, there is one group, not geographically located. They come from the four winds, from north and south, east and west. And they will be gathered up by the agents, the messengers, the angels of the Son of Man. They are called the elect. God's chosen one. Let's not get hung up on that word if we can avoid it. But it means those that are chosen by God, only known to us in hindsight, those who have responded to the gospel, who have heard the call, who have seen the king, and who have bowed before him. They have believed. They have repented. And they will rejoice when the king returns. They will delight in the fact that these end times are over. That they will have persevered to the end. That the persecution is over. That the judgment will come. 
that righteousness will be seen. So on the day of the return of the Son of Man, there will be a people who are called out from all of the other peoples and all of the other nations. There will be Europeans and Americans and Africans. There will be Gen X and Gen Z and Gen whatever next. They will be called out of the middle classes and the working classes, out of the poor and out of the wealthy, called into the presence of the Son of Man to be with him and to reign with him. You see, the Son of Man comes in judgment, but he also comes to receive his own people. He will come with, we're told, power and great glory. There'll be no argument. There will be no appeals. There will be judgment. And I'm not trying to scare you, but Jesus is warning them, the disciples that he's speaking to, and he is warning us. This is the parameter. This is the end of the line. No matter how long this age lasts for, no matter how deep the trifle This is where we end up. This is the bottom of the bowl. Will we hear the words of Jesus? Will we understand the times? Will we believe the one who will come in judgment, but has already come so that we might avoid the judgment? We've sung of it. We've sung of the reality that we can say, It is well with my soul because of the bliss of this glorious thought that my sin is borne by Jesus. All of my rebellion against a good God is put on Jesus. The one who will come and judge the world came first to save the world. He is not Just above it, he also entered into it. Just as this cross stands behind me, overlooking me physically now, as we read these words in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, the cross is in view. Even as Jesus speaks these things to his disciples, he's within a few days of dying for them so that they might know God, so that they might be assured That whatever happens, they stand in right relationship with the God who made them, the God who they rebelled against, but the God who loves them. Jesus will go to the cross and endure punishment so that we might avoid it. So that we might know with all certainty that the judgment on the day that the Son of Man returns will be, they belong to me. And he will gather his people to themselves, whoever they are, wherever they're from, no matter what they've done, if they have trusted in Jesus. And the question is, will we heed the warning? Will we put our faith, our trust in him? So that on that day we can receive him with joy. Jesus says, verse 32, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs become tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. 
Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The question for us is, as we examine the words of Jesus, is he right? Is his description of this last age correct? Because if it is, we need to be aware of the times. We need to put our trust in him. He is at the gates. Our final point, Jesus is coming back, so be ready. Verse 36 is, it turns out, one of the most confusing verses for theologians. How can Jesus not know when he's coming back? given all that he does know about what is to come. What does that tell us about Jesus' divinity or his humanity? And lots of pages and lots of books have been written about that. But surely the point Jesus is making is not complex. The New Testament, on a number of occasions, reminds us that we can be distracted in trying to know things we, ought, we don't need to know. 1 Timothy says, uh, Paul writing to a church, uh, as I urged you when, into, when, it, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Or, writing again to a different church, Paul says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by our prophecy or by a word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Again, we can look into the church and find people who will say confidently this is when Jesus will return and you think have you not read Jesus saying I don't even know when it is because Jesus is not saying we need to set a fixed date instead he says don't worry about when it is be ready be ready What is the right response to the sure knowledge that Jesus will return? What does the one who hears his words, who understands and believes these words of Jesus, what do they look like? Let me give us four markers. Firstly, they are busy. Jesus starts to talk about the time of Noah and the coming of the flood. He says... It will come suddenly, and up until that point, in a sense, you won't see anything different. People will be doing the ordinary things of life. Marrying, eating, grinding at the mill, serving, sowing in the fields. They're getting on with life. Because Jesus is coming back, get on with life. So they're busy. Secondly, they are sober. Jesus truly will bring judgment on those who have rejected him. 
And that brings, should bring with it a weightiness to our lives and to our witness. If we are truly to love people, our response will echo that of the response of Jesus that we read at the start of our time. Jesus' sad, despondent word as he mourns over the city. There is a soberness to our living because of what Jesus has said. Thirdly, they are holy. People who are ready know that Jesus is coming, know that he is returning, and knows that he will judge their actions. Eliot's going to think more about this next week because the, the parables in chapter 25 really bring this out, but I think it's worth noting even now. And it's not... Jesus is coming back to look busy. No, there's a genuine desire that recognises that Jesus is all that he has shown us that he is. And Jesus is going to do all that he has promised. And so there is a right response which says, I trust that you are good and I will live how you call me to live. They are busy, they are sober, they are holy, they are watchful. As Jesus goes into the, the parables, he's going to talk about people that are waiting for something. But there is a watchfulness that God's people will have, knowing that Christ will return. Now, there can be a watchfulness that is characterized by fear. So that example I just gave, oh, Jesus is coming back. But there's a watchfulness that is characterized by hope. Hope that things will be better, that Jesus will do what he has promised. A hope that when Jesus returns, our faith will be sight. A hope that one day the work that God has begun in his people will be finished. A hope that the work of Christ will not only continue, but will also be seen and delighted in. There is a hope that one day we will see Jesus and we will worship him in a way that, and in, and in an unhindered way. In a way that we long for now, but we fail to do so often. There is a hope that on, as verse 46 says, as Jesus talks about, it gives an illustration of a servant waiting for his master. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. There will be a joyful reunion, an affirmation and an acceptance A moment of glory that leads on into glory. So are we, see, Jesus is coming back. Are we ready? Are you ready? Let's pray.
Father, in the quietness of our hearts now, we want to respond to you. Would you help us by your spirit to do that? Father, we pray that you would make us ready for the return of Jesus. Lord, continue your work of transformation amongst us. And Father, we pray that even today people would turn hearing the words of Jesus, understanding the times, and they would put their trust in him and find salvation and in that salvation, hope and joy and peace and expectation. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.